Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Rosh Hashanah sermon by Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney. We had been married for six months before the weather was warm enough to crave a glass of lemonade. I remember calling out from the June humidity of our kitchen way across all 350 square feet of our apartment, calling out, what should I make the lemonade in? I heard extensive shuffling as my new husband, Daniel, searched the living room cabinets where we kept everything stored besides daily dishware. I poked my head out and he laughed as he had held up a shiny crystal pitcher still dusted with tiny balls of packing styrofoam. I think this is the only pitcher we own. And he was right, it was. In fact, we owned very few things. And of the few things that we owned, we had one version. One very fancy and rarely used version. We agonized over picking the perfect comforter and sheets set. Choosing the perfect art piece slash salad bowl, selecting the perfect tablecloth. This is what happens when you hand two struggling nomadic graduate students a scanner at Bed Bath & Beyond and send them on a high-pressure scavenger hunt. The day that we started our wedding registry is my most formative memory of decision paralysis. What exactly is the perfect bath towel? I perseverated for 30 minutes as I thumbed through piles of beige fluff. And by the end of that day, I would have paid Steve, our smiling wedding registry Sherpa, to choose the perfect soap dispenser for me. The agony of the search for the perfect anything is rooted in the fear of regret. I balk at the idea of getting a tattoo, not so much because I object to it halachically or aesthetically, but because I can't imagine someone being so confident that they'd be happy with their decision tomorrow and the next day and the next. How do you even know when you've picked the perfect tattoo? But that question is built on a broken premise. People who get tattoos aren't necessarily convinced that they've picked the perfect tattoo. They're confident that they can live happily with the choice that they've made. I imagine it might feel a little something like the, oh God, I hope I'm making the right call feeling I got in my gut as I pressed ink over and over again into my mortgage documents when I bought my first home, you know, except in skin. Our notary public let fly with some pithy but nevertheless accurate aphorism that night. There's nothing certain except for uncertainty or something like that. That's why there's no class to take about how to make the perfect choice, no method for making the perfect decision. Because there is no such thing as choosing something perfect. There is only the possibility of choosing something or someone with integrity. Perfection and integrity are bound up in the same word, in the same root in our sacred texts. They are two facets of a multi-sided lexical gem. Deep in the annual cycle of chanting Torah, we encounter this word over and over again, tamim. 
Tamim is the word used to describe our sacrificial offerings without blemish. Here, you should offer a lamb without blemish. Tamim. Two lambs without blemish. Tamimim. A male lamb, a female lamb, they should be without blemish. Some translations treat these descriptions of offerings as meaning objectively perfect. Other translations render tamim as the best choice, relatively speaking. I'm a fan of that latter rendition. Choicest offerings, the best you got. You might argue that the strictures concerning korbanot, these technical rituals, are meant to be taken as requiring literal perfection in the animals that we brought as sacrifices. But the narrative voice of the Torah leverages that very same word, tamim, when it wants to convey the idea of approximate perfection, true integrity, even if imperfect, in human beings. We first meet the word tamim when we meet Noah, that guy in the second partial panel. In that literary moment, we learn that God has made an irreversible decision to destroy the earth in its first iteration, and God has made plans for a new habitation on the shores of receding floodwaters. God has also apparently made a hiring decision in that capital campaign. God chose Noah, whom the narrative voice of the Torah speaks of as Ish Sadiq Tamim Hayah Bedorotav. He was a righteous man. He was Tamim in his generation. This is the first of many scenes in which God chooses an individual leader to execute a divine plan. Later, God will raise up Abram and Moshe and others. But this is perhaps the only time when we're given a hint of why. Why does God choose Noah? You might read the verse as Noah having been a righteous exception in the mortal world. In a universe of lawless and corrupt humans, Noah was a shining anomaly, pure-hearted and without blemish, perfect. But countless rabbinic voices read the description of Noah as basically the least troublesome potential leader in a troubling world. The choicest, a righteous guy, relatively speaking. The Talmud in Sanhedrin wonders if Noah had lived in Avram's generation, would he even have been noteworthy? In the third century rabbinic imagination of Reish Lakish, Noah was like a barrel of decent wine found among vinegar, pleasant only because he was relatively palatable. Considering the context of deplorable human behavior at the time of Noah's generation, and specifically given Noah's own flaws as revealed in his biblical character arc, it's hard to imagine that Noah was ever meant to be read as the perfect man. The modifier Bedorotav in his generation is instructive. It's critical. We should take to heart that Noah was called Tamim not because he was perfect, but because he had integrity, a consistency between his thoughts and his actions. The continuation of the verse speaks to Noah's integration of his heart and his hands. Ish tzadik haya tamim haya bedorotav et Elohim hitalech Noah. He was a righteous man. He had integrity in his generation. With God, Noah did walk. Noah prayed with his feet in the words of Dr. Heschel. Who should build the vessel that would preserve life and bridge the old world and the new? Someone who was willing to act from a place of faith. A person who stood out for his integrity. And we know that if God had searched the world pre-flood, if we anthropomorphize the Holy One and imagine God turning the earth over and over in divine hands and searching the hearts of human leaders for perfection, 
God would have been stuck in an infinite quest for the impossible. The perfect is the enemy of progress. If we stand frozen in frustration before our flawed options, time will slip away while we are immobilized in indecision. Deep down, we know that when we're faced with choices, small choices like tablecloths and salad bowls, or profound choices like hiring employees or joining communities, electing leaders, courting and consecrating our partners, that we should seek not perfection, but integrity. For several decades before my mom retired, she worked for the Employment Development Department of California. Her last few stints were in the world of unemployment insurance, but for a while she managed programs that dealt with job coaching and placement. I learned that the wisdom in the job-seeking world is that healthy employers are looking for best fit. They know that every employee comes with a set of inadequacies and shortcomings, which is why no job interview is complete without the question, can you tell us what your biggest weakness is? A savvy employer is looking for candidates who possess awareness of their flaws and carry around the right toolbox to patch themselves up when they stumble. They're not looking for perfection. They're looking for integrity. A black belt interviewee knows how to convey to their potential employer a chance to buy into them at the ground floor to persuasively present as a worthy investment whose stock will rise if they are treated as a professional in progress. I'm reminded of the depth of this value proposition every time I go to a local farmer's market and see a booth staffed by Homeboy Industries I was first introduced to Homeboy by Rabbi Ari Lucas when he brought a bag of their tortilla chips to a staff meeting a few years back. He took the opportunity to tell me all about this vital Los Angeles institution, which has served communities for 30 years, providing job training pathways for folks on probation, with criminal records, in recovery, looking for a way out of a downward spiral. Homeboy basically serves as a guarantor and lifts people up into countless job opportunities across the region by shining a light on their integrity. There are also Homeboy retail and wholesale operations, like the bakery that's run from ovens to sales by at-risk employees. I love spotting Homeboy at festivals and fairs. I love watching the pride in their work and in themselves as they kneel down to offer my daughter a sample slice of fresh-baked bread. I've met people like Ismael Zavala, who shared the following. I spent 22 and a half years in prison. I remember a quote that somebody shared with me a long time ago. They said, don't judge the second half of your life based on how you started your first half. I didn't start off right, but I can do something about the second half. That's what's motivated me to get employment and provide for my family. To find someone's integrity, you have to be willing to look past flaws past criminal records, past deviances and mistakes, and countless human imperfections. To reach to the heart of integrity, you have to hold out an open hand in a gesture of trust. There's a teaching in Likutei Moharan from the works of Rebbe Nachman of Bretzlav that speaks to the deep impression that we make on the universe when we give the benefit of the doubt. Here's what Rabbi Nachman says will happen when we literally extend our hand, dan chaf zechut, with a palm open to merit and virtue and dignity. He says, for it's necessary to give the benefit of the doubt when judging someone. This is even the case for someone who would seem like they have nothing good to offer. 
It's necessary to search and to find in them some little bit of goodness. Because in that little bit of goodness, no bad exists. And because of your encountering this little bit of good and giving them the benefit of the doubt, you actually lift them up from the scale of justice, from the palm of the scale of justice. You take them away from a place of judgment and you allow them to return. You allow them to do tshuva. What a gift we give to the universe, to our fellow human beings, when instead of looking for perfection, we go searching for the little hidden points of light and goodness that exist inside everyone. Look at what we would miss if we were only out for perfection. We'd miss all those infinite bits of potential that collectively add up to so much beauty and holiness and delicious tortilla chips and bread. We miss all of it if we miscalibrate our search and disqualify any soul that seems broken. And you know what? It's unexpectedly easy to course correct this way. To take an utterly negative outlook on someone and spot brilliant pinpricks of hope against a bleak backdrop of despair, to see potential in their eyes, it's easier than you think to access that brand of optimism, to find a kernel of goodness in everyone. What's unexpectedly hard to do is to stop ourselves from letting the small things spoil the good stuff in our lives. It's a challenge to keep ourselves from sullying an overwhelmingly good experience, a great person, a wonderful place, by limiting our search to perfection until we allow a toxic layer of discontent to settle in, and that overrides the beauty. I remember seeing a movie once at the former Lev Smadar Theater in the heart of Jerusalem. Anyone ever been there? Lev Smadar? It was a great theater. Before the movie ever began, I think it was Slumdog Millionaire, before the movie even began, I, I noticed a small tear on the upper right-hand corner of the screen. I couldn't unsee that small hole, and it tormented me to the point that I don't remember enjoying the film. I get like that sometimes, letting an imperfection itch in my brain until I can't enjoy what is otherwise enjoyable. This kind of fixating on a flaw happens all the time. Soon as the gates shut on the High Holy Day season, just a few weeks from now, even though it feels like we've only just begun, Sukkot and Simchat Torah will give way here to school shopping and shul hopping season. Sometimes I get a chance to spot a family on their search for the perfect school. They'll be touring our halls with Leslie Bloom, who does admissions for Pressman, and I'll overhear a dozen rapid-fire questions as they pass through the lower level. How much Hebrew will their child get in kindergarten? A lot. Uh, do we have a 3D printer? Are there field trips? Is there a gym? Yes. <laughs> What's the discipline policy? Why no uniforms? Hot lunch? I get dizzy thinking about the thousand criteria by which this community will be judged and the other thousand unseen but no less critical features. Will people make meals for us if one of us gets an illness or, or faces an injury? Will you help my child grapple with anxiety? Do faculty and students act with integrity? I wonder how many knows, how many knows, how many unsatisfactory answers it will take before a family might walk away. I think back on some sage advice about boundaries from my mentor back at the Jewish Theological Seminary, Rabbi Bill Lebo. 
he teaches that when a rabbi is interviewed at a congregation, she is also interviewing the congregation. And she has to know her gray lines and her red lines, the places where she'll stretch and the matters in which she is willing to concede. What happens when every issue becomes a red line? When you give every little niggling particle of discomfort the power to override that which is otherwise a source of enveloping and enriching goodness. If the quality of coffee, for example, that we serve at our daily minion was a red line for attendance, we would never be boasting of 365 day a year services. So our core attendees either embrace the forgiving mask of half and half or make their Starbucks run a little early or become tea people uh, because Daily Minion is worth letting our high-octane coffee slide. A few years ago, I attended a funeral for a parent of one of our notably engaged member families. And as I entered the chapel at Hillside, I noticed several Beit Deen's worth of rabbis congregated at the front of the chapel. Beth Am, Beth Jacob, B'nai David, maybe there were others, represented both in strong numbers by clergy and by laity. Listening to the words of consolation shared with the children of the deceased, it became clear that this family was as beloved and dedicated to each of the communities who had shown up as I knew them to be dear and committed to Temple Batham. In a private moment later at Shiva, I asked the son of the deceased how his family had found themselves active in the membership bodies of so many shuls. It's all one big community, he said. What one synagogue can offer him for his ideal davening, at least for that day or that year, another synagogue can offer in a bat mitzvah experience for his daughter. I couldn't help but think how easy it would have been to invert that mindset and take a path to negativity, to a place of abandoning synagogue involvement altogether. How uncomplicated it would seem to let one single point of friction with any synagogue community send you swimming back to a futile search for the perfect shul, which... I assure you, you will not find. That's a lonely place to be. I want to give the school hoppers and the shul shoppers a hug. I want to take a deep breath with them and tell them the following. I promise that if given the chance, we will nourish you. And I also promise that we will disappoint you. And when we do disappoint you, I hope for two things. First, that you will give us a chance to do better by sharing your disappointment with a mix of candor and kindness. We are not perfect, but we do strive to act with integrity. And second, that you will open your heart to the possibility that we cannot be your everything, but we can be one imperfectly holy place where you come to get a refill of spiritual and educational sustenance. Each of our lives is a colorful collection of tender, multi-layered relationships with precious fallible human beings with institutions that sometimes hit the mark and sometimes disappoint. Imagine what you'd miss in a world where a speck of disappointment eclipses all the good you could glean from someone or from something. Even the most treasured people and places in our lives are freckled with complication. When we love them in their brokenness and in their wholeness, we say yes to receiving the million points of light in between. So I find myself wishing you a good year knowing that it will not be a perfect year. I want to wish you a year of encounters with integrity, a year in which you have the strength and fortitude to seek out the points of light even in the darkest places and people, a year in which you find cause 
to pull out the crystal pitcher for special occasions, the one you shopped for and you dreamed of pulling off the shelf in the most memorable moments, but also with a cabinet full of Rubbermaid pitchers with their paper sticker half worn off by the dishwasher ready to serve lemonade on Sukkot. A year in which we will disappoint you, I will disappoint you. A year in which I will be imperfect and you will also be imperfect, but we'll strive for integrity anyway the choicest versions of ourselves that we are capable of being. A year in which we will look our fear of regret square in the eye and choose anyway. A year of being tamim. A year of possibilities. Shana Tova. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.